Hello, this is Calvin Driscoll, and I want to welcome you to the Real Leaders Podcast. This podcast is specifically designed to equip you with godly leadership skills that can be applied to all areas of your life. Throughout this podcast, my dad, Pastor Mark Driscoll, will be sitting down with some world-renowned pastors and ministry leaders to learn what it really means to be a real leader. For more content like this, we encourage you to visit realfaith.com. Now, enjoy today's Real Leader Podcast. Well, howdy. My name is Pastor Mark Driscoll. I'm here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, a church we planted as a family four years ago, and also have the honor of distributing Bible teaching through Real Faith, and honored to speak to you today. I'll just be totally honest. I think a bunch of you are pastors and leaders. It's Monday, so I kind of got preacher hangover, and uh, I'm just going to verbal process some stuff with you, maybe just a little bit of an informal chat. Uh, God saved me at the age of 19. I became a senior pastor at the age of 25. I was not ready. I did not know what I was doing. God was still incredibly gracious. And uh, a lot of people got saved and a lot of things got done. And uh, in my years, I uh, was largely dealing with uh, college students. And it's interesting because colleges tend to be culturally upstream. And a lot of the ideology uh, that dominates the university eventually finds its way down into the culture as it flows downstream. As those kids graduate, they start to create culture. They start to establish laws. They start to... Uh, celebrate uh, whatever it is that they believe uh, was kind of that uh, gospel that they were given in the university and they carry it forth into the culture and it becomes the bedrock for society, for government, for media, for technology. So if you wanna see what the future looks like, go to the university and eventually those kids will be the culture makers and the gatekeepers and they'll let you know what's coming. So I got saved in college. A lot of my early ministry was in college ministry, started a church that ultimately um, God was very gracious with and it was largely college students. But uh, over those maybe two decades altogether of ministry uh, before we relocated to the valley, it was just a constant conflict and head on collision and uh, some of which I understood uh, culturally, some of which I've come to understand as I've gotten a little bit older, and I just wanted to share it with you. Another thing I just feel inclined to say, and I'm just gonna verbal process for a bit. I've got a couple notes and we'll see how this goes. Um, that early on as a young pastor, I was invited into a young leaders cohort. So there was a day I was young and uh, it was a, a lot of young pastors talking about postmodern philosophy and critique and some things that maybe are a little more passe today, but welcome to the trends and fads. And nonetheless, um, as we started teaching and traveling, got a little bit of attention, um, all of a sudden some in that movement really started to veer hard left. And uh, some of them became fully apostate. Some of them today are celebrating same-sex marriage, uh, which is a false gospel we'll get into. Some have embraced pantheism or panentheism, and they've really walked away from a personal view of a relational creator God. Uh, many have self-destructed their marriages, and uh, as a result, um, it's been really tragic to see. I argued against that, taught against that, fought against that, and then uh, now find myself in a position where, quite frankly, I see, um, I think, the, the next great threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the next great threat to the health of the Christian church in my lifetime. That was kind of my first fight. I think uh, this is the second one, and I think it is well upon us. And I think that the church is in a particularly weak position with a lot of churches being closed, 
throttled, having board wars, bad governance, and then a lot of pressure through media and social media add to that. A lot of young pastors that are naive, theologically uninformed, and uh, if you're one of those guys watching and you've spent more money on your, uh, if you spent more money on your wardrobe than your library, uh, you probably should uh, sell some of your Jordans and go buy some commentaries and beef yourself up because it's wartime for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and it's not just about looking cool on Instagram. It's about preaching truth and uh, fighting the demonic realm. And oftentimes that is really in the realm of ideology. That's why so much of the Bible speaks of spiritual warfare in terms of renewing your mind and taking every thought captive. And that's not happening right now with a lot of younger, hipper, cooler evangelical pastors who are finding their fads and trends on social media, they're jumping on something called critical theory, which I will say, I believe is the greatest threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe it has already infected and affected the university government. I believe that it also has taken over the social media platforms. I believe that it is in the process of silencing old dissent. This is not a political issue. This is primarily a spiritual and a theological issue. I think that it has already taken deep-seated root in many uh, mainline apostate liberal Christian denominations. And I think uh, it's entirely possible uh, that we will see in our lifetime, the emergence of a brand new cult, just like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons came out of Christianity. I believe out of critical theory, you're going to see an apostate version that still claims to be Christian, but denies the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that there are many younger evangelicals that are absolutely in harm's way when it comes to this false teaching and ideology. Traditional theory is basically how we build things. Um, and so Christianity would fit in the concept of traditional theory. How do you build uh, law and order? Our God is a God of law. His, his word is filled with laws. How do, you, um, how do you architect a family? It talks about husbands and wives and it has specific things to say to both. Uh, what's the best environment for a child? Well, it tells us that God made marriage and he made us male and female and he made us to increase in number, to fill the earth, subdue it, to parent, to raise our children in the admonition and instruction of the Lord. The Bible tells us the basic principles for um, economics, private property theory, not everything should belong to the government. You're not allowed to steal some of those issues. And so the Bible is traditional uh, theory. It is about how to build things, how to build society, how to build economy, how to build family, how to build gender, how to build sexuality, identity, and marriage. Critical theory comes along, and I won't get into all the history of it, uh, but critical theory is just that. It is an overarching ideology, it's a disposition, it's a worldview. And it literally critiques everything that was built. If you think of traditional theory, it's like a construction crew. Critical theory is like a demolition crew. My dad was a union drywaller and he would build things. Um, other guys would get paid to come in and demo and tear things down. Traditional theory is about construction. Uh, critical theory is about deconstruction. And the way this works is because we live in a fallen, flawed world, and everything is built by someone who is imperfect and flawed. Everything that built, is built rather, uh, has flaws. Every organization, every institution, every family, every discipline has imperfections because it's architected by imperfect people. And even if there were a perfect system, it would become imperfect because of our imperfections. That's the case, of course, with Adam and Eve. God gave them a perfect environment and they made it imperfect through their decision-making and their rebellion and their sin. 
And the point is, it's much easier to be uh, one who is critical of those who are building than it is to actually build something. It's very easy, for example, to criticize a leader rather than to actually lead people. It's very easy to criticize parents than it is to raise your own kids. It's very easy to criticize uh, an economy than it is to find a way to generate revenue that cares for constituency. It's very hard to do something. It's very easy to criticize those who are doing something. And I believe that God largely works through traditional theory and I believe that Satan works through critical theory. In fact, critical theory is just that, it's the spirit of the accuser. It says in Revelation 12:10 that Satan is the accuser of the children of God that he accuses day and night. Another way to say that is that Satan in the demonic realm, they, uh, they are critics, that's what they do. Uh, the criticism started in heaven where Satan and demons, Revelation 12, seven through nine, they criticized God. They, they had criticism of his leadership, his decision-making, his org chart, his structure. They didn't like his kingdom. They felt that it was unjust. So let me say this, the first rebellion and overthrowing in the name of social justice happened in the unseen realm. And it happened with Satan and demons trying to take down God and his authority and the culture that he and the divine beings that he created, created alongside of him and with him. Uh, when Satan lost that battle, he was a uh, critical theorist, ground zero. He would be the first one. He was then thrown down to the earth where it says then in Revelation 12, 10. So Revelation 12, seven through nine, talks about the war in heaven and the accuser or the critic of God being then cast down, Revelation 12, 10, the next verse says, and his new ministry, uh, if I could use that in quotes, his counterfeit ministry is to accuse the children of God day and night, which means that the spirit of the accuser is now at work in the world. And he's largely at work through critical theory, meaning he is critiquing everyone and everything. And uh, he is also the condemner where it says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, the spirit of the accuser is the spirit of the critic and the condemner. And that's in fact what he is doing. And so the big idea from a spiritual warfare perspective and to put that overlay on culture, uh, my wife and I did that in a book we co-authored called Win Your War. And, uh, and we use some of the work of Michael Heiser, which most of you are probably familiar with, groundbreaking, great contributions to the, the, the theology and the understanding of the demonic and the unseen realm. But the big concept that we share in our book is that everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. God is creator, Satan is counterfeiter. And so Satan isn't creator or creative, he's counterfeiter, it's deception. God gives truth, Satan gives lies. Uh, you're filled with the spirit or you're demon possessed. That's the counterfeit of being spirit filled. That there is um, true prophets and false prophets. There are true teachers and false teachers. Um, that ultimately um, there are holy spirits and then there are demons which are unholy spirits. Everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. We see this work itself out not just individually. And this is, I think, maybe one of the weaknesses. And I know many of you are Pentecostal and charismatic and uh, I love you and I'm glad to be with you and I'm charismatic. But one of the weaknesses is we tend to think of spiritual warfare almost exclusively in personal categories, personal temptation, personal lies, accusations, uh, identity misappropriations and such. The Bible also shows us that spiritual warfare and that counterfeit of the critic who is behind critical theory, it overtakes entire cultures. So we see this, for example, in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus is a case study in a demonic counterfeit. Uh, 
there is the real God and then there's Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh is supposed to be literally the son of God. So he is the counterfeit of Jesus. The whole nation of Egypt is the counterfeit of the kingdom of God. The uh, false religious leaders who come, they are counterfeits to the real priests that serve the real God. The signs, wonders, and miracles that were all demonic are counterfeits of the true signs, wonders, and miracles that accompany, for example, Moses. Um, That ultimately everything in the nation of Egypt is a battle between the realms where the critic and his uh, culture creation process uh, has overtaken an entire people group. And then God comes in to overthrow and to critique the critic. The same thing happens in Daniel. Daniel's a case study in what God creates, Satan counterfeits. And so Babylon is used, if my memory's right, like 227 times in the Bible. It does refer to an ancient nation, but it refers largely to uh, demonic um, culture and uh, Satan's work on the earth. And so it talks about, for example, uh, Babylon in Revelation. Uh, Some of the early church uh, Christians would refer to the nation of Rome in their day as Babylon. So Babylon is not just an ancient nation, it's a spirit that infects and affects many nations and it critiques culture and it creates counterfeit culture that then is the counterfeit to the kingdom of God. And in Daniel's case, uh, this included um, castrating him. And so it's gender reassignment surgery and gender reappropriation, which we'll talk about in a moment is evidence of the work of the spirit of Babel. And, uh, and ultimately the goal was to cancel and to kill him. And so throughout the whole storyline of the Bible over and over and over, there are these places where the critic, the accuser, Uh, in the name of justice, who started his rebellion against God in heaven, he comes down to the earth, he attacks leadership. He then possesses, overtakes, fills political leaders. And then there's counterfeit religion and spirituality. And part of what happens, for example, in Babylon and in Egypt, these become interlocked systems. So your economics, your religion, your gender, your national identity, all of these disparate elements of what makes you a person, they're all interconnected in a holistic way. And that's the counterfeit of the kingdom of God. And so what we're seeing today is the construction of what the Bible would call worldliness. Worldliness worldliness rather is not just playing cards on Sunday or going to movies. Um, It is having the spirit of the critic in you to where you are becoming a critic of others. It also is in the name of justice, doing unjust things to take down laws and authorities that are justly appointed by God. And what's happening is that as this overtakes social media and this spirit overtakes culture, if you unleash that in your church, eventually you're going to be the one who is criticized. And eventually in the name of justice, you will be the one who is attacked and torn down. And so what I wanna look at is just to show you, many of you young leaders, uh, to have you be a bit more maybe reflective on what you say, what you like, what you post, what trends you chase, and what slogans and hashtags you echo. And so let me just look at some of these. I made a few notes here. Um, Everything that God creates, Satan counterfeits. First of all, there is a counterfeit of creation. And so uh, God created the heavens and the earth. So there is creator creation. The counterfeit today is pantheism or panentheism. And that is that uh, all that is creation is in totality God, or that God is limited to or at work in and through creation. Uh, 
Uh, this is the popular ideology that is dominant in radical environmentalism, random, uh, radical rather uh, animal rights activism and, uh, and many other such things. And ultimately it plays itself out in gender and sexuality. And so the Bible tells us that there is a creator and there is creation. Romans one says that uh, this counterfeit spirit, uh, it exchanges the truth of God for the lie and worships and serves created things rather than the creator God. So the, the ultimate lie, there is one lie that the father of lies tells that is behind all the other lies. And that is to attack the differentiation and the perfection of God as creator and his creation. And so what happens uh, in this counterfeit of creation, there is no distinction between creator and creation. And then what happens is we replace God as creator. I'll show you how this works in gender theory and study. So according to the Bible, you have uh, sex, male, female, binary. Again, the Bible is very binary. And again, part of the critic uh, and the critical theory and the critical culture theory would eliminate binary categories. There is God and Satan, good and evil, heaven and hell, truth and lies, right? There, there are differentiations. One of those differentiations um, is between male and female. And the Bible says that God made them male and female. Part of the way that critical theory is uh, denying God as creator and then replacing God as creator is encouraging people to create their own gender, their own sexuality, their own identity. And so in the Bible, you're made with a sex, male or female, you're, that's your sex. And then you have your gender, which is masculine and feminine. This is why the Bible says things to men and to women because there are men and women. And when the Bible says in 1 Corinthians to act like men, it means number one, there are men. And number two, that men should act like men. So the Bible's very binary on these things. Um, this gets very confusing in our culture where people don't like this concept of fixed uh, sex and gender roles. And so as a result, then we get to recreate ourselves. And so literally, what the spirit of Babylon tries to do is the spirit of Babylon tries to take your God-given sex, gender, and sexuality and literally uh, recreate you. So with Daniel, it was castration. Today, we would call it gender reassignment surgery. That God made him a male and they wanted to castrate him so that he could no longer live uh, functionally as a male. They, they, they forbid that from him. And today people are told you need to choose your own gender and you should also get a knife and go under the knife and then you can recreate or rather create your gender. And some would even say, you know, I, I feel like God made me this way, but I'm really this way. And what that means is the creator erred. He made a mistake in how he made me. Therefore he needs to repent and I need to replace him as the new creator. And I need to recreate myself with my own gender. It's a supplanting of God as creator. It's saying that God in fact erred and he needs to repent to us. And then we need to do some work to overcome his sin against us. Another example, um, the, the, the counterfeit in critical theory is, uh, and by the way, critical theory is now sort of like the gospel. It's the overarching meta narrative that pulls together all of the disciplines. So this would explain uh, the dominance in economic theory. 
Um, my son, uh, his first economics class in uh, university, they handed him Karl Marx as a textbook. And uh, they forgot to tell the students that Karl Marx was a mass murderer. Uh, instead, it was just an economic theory. This is where you get fat studies, gender studies, women's studies, uh, colonial, neo-colonial, post-colonial studies. It's just critique in every discipline. And so what happens then is you feel like you are just by critiquing and attacking those who have taught things or have built things, okay? And then what happens then is their version of the Bible is critical theory. Just like you and I believe that the word of God is perfect and should not be critiqued or judged, it should be studied and obeyed. Critical theory has replaced God's word with critical theory studies as the overarching highest authority. Number three, um, they then have a counterfeit concept within critical theory of original sin. We believe as Christians, uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21, that because of one man's sin, the whole race fell. That's the doctrine of federal headship. The doctrine of federal headship is that we're either under Adam or we're under Christ. We're born under Adam. We're born again under Christ. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, uh, Jesus is called the last Adam. So there's the first Adam and the last Adam. These are only two choices and categories that we're not independent, autonomous individuals, that we're all part of a people group, a collective. We are, we are either judged together or saved together in Adam or in Christ. The result is that we believe as Christians, according to the Bible, that we have original sin and that we are born with a sin nature. This is where the Bible says that we are wicked from our mother's womb. Um, and the counterfeit of that, the, the critical theory counterfeit of that is not that it is the sin nature you were born with that is the fallen part of you. It is your race, it is your gender, it is your ethnicity. So as a white guy, um, that's my original sin, that I was born as a white guy. All right, I'll let you on a little secret. I didn't choose to be Irish. God chose that. We were O'Driscolls from County Cork, Southern Ireland. Um, and I can't repent of being a man because God made me a man. And I can't repent of being Irish because God chose for me to be Irish. And so the counterfeit here is that the sin that is imputed to you, it is not, uh, it is not because of any transgression of God's law, but because of bias and privilege that was uh, allegedly handed to you. Okay. The result is now you're seeing people apologize for being American. You'll see them apologize for being British. You'll see them apologize for being male. You'll see them apologize for their, their race or their culture. Uh, they're apologizing for things that are not necessarily sinful, though all of those things do contain sinful elements. And instead what's happening then is we're repenting of, um, of things that are not sin in God's sight. And the result is now that uh, we've redefined sin. And so sin is not a nature that you all have. Because again, if some groups inherit the wrong gender or race or class or creed, they need to repent of that. But if you don't have those elements or aspects, you are basically considered holy, righteous, and good. Like Adam and Eve, you have no sinful disposition that you need to be aware of or repent of. And what this is, this, this is causing people to repent of things that are not going to save them that we're supposed to repent of our personal sin before God, not things that are inherited to us from ancestors and chosen by God that are not necessarily sinful. Um, 
and then ultimately as well, number four, um, behind all of this is the spirit of the accuser. That, that uh, God convicts us and the counterfeit of conviction is condemnation. Again, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So God convicts us of personal sin. And it's very popular today to talk about their sin, not my sin. Very popular to talk about institutional sin, not personal sin. And, uh, and if I do talk about personal sin, it's because I'm a victim of institutional sin or your sin. And therefore I am a victim and I'm taking the place of Jesus because I'm the righteous one. And you now need to repent to me because you have caused me to suffer. All of that to say, what happens then is uh, God convicts us of specific sin. Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit to convict us. And then the demonic counterfeit of that is the accuser that Satan accuses us. He accuses us of things that Jesus already died for. He accuses us, us rather of things that are not necessarily true. And the way this counterfeit and the spirit of critical theory is working today, now we are doing the work of the accuser. We are accusing people, attacking people, maligning people, destroying people. And it is considered justice to destroy people and attack them. And one thing you pastors may not know, um, just as I'm doing my little rant here, uh, some years ago, I had one, just a weird, a weird experience. I was taking my kid to a, get a burger and there was this a very liberal um, pro LGBTQ, whatever the alphabet soup group was of the day, uh, magazine newspaper. And uh, it was on display in front of the burger shop and my photo was on the front page with a column from me that I had not written. I had not written it at all. I had nothing to do with it. All of a sudden, I'm wondering what the heck am I doing there? And the things I'm reading are absolutely what I don't believe as a Bible teacher. And then people started leaving my church and they're like, I can't believe you changed teams and you've joined them and now you believe that. I was like, that wasn't me. Come to find that, uh, that public figures do not have the same legal rights as private citizens. Okay, and that means that uh, Saturday Night Live can parody a political leader or a uh, business leader or an athlete, but not a private citizen. That once you become a public figure, libel, libel and slander laws don't apply to you in the exact same way as a private citizen. So for those of you who are pastors and leaders, what I would say is this, be very careful what you believe. Because if, if you hear something said and it's an accusation about a leader, it may be from the accuser and you don't wanna join his team. Furthermore, some people will say, well, if it's said, it must be true. And or, um, you know, they wouldn't say that unless there was good reason. Well, the, the truth is, again, uh, libel and slander laws don't apply to public figures, which means if you have a platform or you are someone that is more well-known, things can be said about you that have no basis in reality, but you don't have much opportunity to do anything about it. In the same way, Donald Trump or Joe Biden could be parodied on Saturday Night Live, but they can't sue them because they're public figures and that fits under freedom of speech and also entertainment and humor. And so all that to say that we live in a day where the accuser has particular um, opportunity and grounds for significant uh, damage to uh, public figures and to leaders. And this is the counterfeit of conviction and it exists in our culture of criticism. Um, in addition, number five, the, 
the, the counterfeit of critical theory, they have their own counterfeit of the demonic. In the demonic realm, uh, we are told, uh, according to the scriptures, as you know, uh, you're all Pentecostals, whoop, whoop, um, that ultimately there are demonic forces at work in the world. Uh, that our war is not against flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, and spirits. There's a war behind the war. Uh, whatever war we see, behind that is a war we don't see. And that war started in heaven in the presence of God. And therefore, well, we believe as Christians that supernatural forces, demonic forces are like gravity. They're real, they're invisible, and they affect our daily decisions, whether we believe in them or not. So I could grab this clipboard. And even if I don't believe in grav gravity and I drop it, it's real and it has implications. So it is with the demonic realm. Now, what happens in the counterfeit of critical theory, uh, what is unseen and demonic is bias and privilege bias and privilege. And they would say you have unseen uh, bias and privilege. And as a result of that, it determines your thinking and your acting and your valuing and your believing. Therefore, if you have bias and privilege, that is the equivalent of the demonic realm in critical theory and ultimately in cancel culture. Uh, in addition, um, there is a counterfeit of spiritual warfare. The Lord Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You know that you have critical theory and critical culture and the critic or the accuser at work when ultimately the attitude is you're for us or against us. You're for us or against us. Meaning we are right, you are wrong. And, uh, and ultimately there will be no, uh, there'll be no meeting of minds in the middle. Uh, this comes to mind as I'm doing my little verbal process rant for you. Uh, the dictionary definition of uh, tolerance has actually been changed. In previous generations, the uh, dictionary definition of tolerance essentially meant you believe one thing, I believe another thing. Um, we agree to disagree agreeably. We agree to debate or discuss what we disagree about. Maybe you're right and I need to change my mind. Maybe I'm right, you need to change your mind. But either way, there was truth. And if we tolerate one another, meaning we agree to disagree agreeably, then that allows dialogue that allows us to arrive at the truth. Because perhaps even we're both wrong, which is possible. Now, that being said, um, the current dictionary definition of tolerance is that you're right and that I'm right. And what that means is I don't really tolerate you, I celebrate you. This is why unless you post the hashtag, you're considered guilty till proven innocent. This is why unless you march in the parade, you are considered an enemy. This is why um, there is so much cultural pressure that is put on younger leaders and evangelicals because older people tend to value their capital. How much money do I have? Younger people tend to value their social capital. How much approval and influence do I have? That's the result of a social media economy that literally now it's an economy of influence. Some people count followers, other people count dollars. And this whole ideology of critical theory, the critic and cancel culture is ultimately, you're either for us or against us. 
And if you're not for us, you're against us. Therefore, it would be just for us to destroy you because you are our enemy and you are against what is good and we are by nature good. All of this is a counterfeit. It says, we sit in the seat of Jesus, we're the good people. You sit in the seat of sinners, you're the bad people. Unless you join us and celebrate us, then ultimately it is right for us to judge, to critique and to punish you. And to do that is to take away from you power and money and influence and ultimately to redistribute it. And that is in the name of justice. But what you'll never get with current critical theory on social justice, you'll never get uh, cosmic justice. Cosmic justice is between us and God. It doesn't care anything about cosmic justice. It's about replacing God with me and then me judging you. And then me and my group extracting from you power, money, influence, whatever benefits us at your expense. And then we get to build our counterfeit kingdom and we get to rule and reign from our white throne and we get to be judge, jury, and executioner. We replace Jesus, we become literally antichrist, which is against and in place of Christ. That's what antichrist means, against and in place of Christ. And it is an entire antichrist system. Okay, so you need to be very careful, especially you who are younger and maybe less studied. Um, you may think, well, they're, they're using language in the Bible. Well, that's what cults do. Cults will use language in the Bible. And, um, and Satan reads the Bible too. Uh, he shows up and he misquotes it to Adam and Eve and he takes it out of context when he tempts Jesus. And, uh, and there's a big difference between human justice and divine justice. There's a big difference between social justice and cosmic justice. That ultimately, if we're really for justice, uh, we need to be for the justice of Jesus Christ, that we've all sinned against him. And that Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place for our sins, because we are all sinners by nature and choice. None of us is righteous, no, not one. And the result is that God got his justice through the wrath being poured out on the son in our place for our sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our place and put us in his place, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, the scriptures say. Well, if justice doesn't come at the cross of Jesus, it comes at the white throne of Jesus where people will rise from the dead and they'll pass before Jesus, their creator. And Jesus says in John chapter five, that the father judges no one, but he's entrusted all judgment to the son. So you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible is clear on this. It's called the white throne in Revelation, I think it's 20. And we will give an account and we'll be judged accordingly. And hell is the place where justice is meted out. So it's either at the cross or it's in hell, justice is meted out. But again, we can only preach the gospel of Jesus Christ if we are looking for God to get his justice. At the cross, us repenting, or in hell, us suffering. And it's so frustrating that so many younger evangelicals have made so much about horizontal justice, but they have not made any interest or any emphasis on vertical justice, God getting his justice. Because if God gets his justice, now I'm not the good person, I'm the sinner. 
I don't need you to repent to me. I need to repent to him. I can't just talk about all of your failures. I also have to own mine. And again, this is the counterfeit nature of the critic. He's trying to replace God and he's trying to have you sit in the seat of Jesus, condemning and judging others and then them doing right by you, all the while ignoring you doing right by him through repenting of sin. Also, this is, uh, they have a redefinition and a counterfeit of a victim. The greatest victim in the history of the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have all sinned against God. No one has been more transgressed than God. And uh, God's heart in all of this is broken. I think it says in Genesis 6 that God looked at the heart of man and his actions and motives, and they were only evil continually all the time. And God was grieved in his heart that he made man. God looked at the earth and said, everybody is always violating my will, my word, my ways. And it, it, it grieved God in his heart and it broke his heart. The, the ultimate counterfeit of that is that we're all the victims. And the truth is we are all sinners and victims of sin. That we have all sinned and we've been sinned against. This is why the Bible has the doctrines of propitiation and expiation. Propitiation is where our sin is dealt with through the wrath of God poured out on the Son of God. And expiation is the doctrine that we are cleansed not only from the sins that we commit, but the sins that have been committed against us. Sometimes the Bible brings these concepts together like in 1 John. If we confess our sins, okay, so that's propitiation, my sin. My job is not to just be confessing your sin, which is very popular today. Confess everyone's sin, but not your own sin. That's the counterfeit. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, propitiation, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So forgiving us of all of our sins, propitiation, cleansing us from all of our unrighteousness, expiation. Not only is someone a sinner, they're a victim of sin. And so what we need to understand is that Jesus died both to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the Bible, God's people will wear white to show their expiation. When they would go up to worship, they would wear white and climb up to the temple in the Old Testament. At the wedding supper of the lamb, uh, at the end of Revelation, the bride is given fine, pure, clean, white linen to wear. Uh, I think the first uh, mention of, uh, or one of the most dominant mentions of um, defilement is in the Old Testament. I think it's around Genesis 34, where it says um, that there was a, a young woman named Dinah. She was sexually assaulted and she was defiled. She was defiled. That means that, uh, that ultimately she needed to have expiation and cleansing. That's what the Lord Jesus does. That's what the Lord Jesus gives. Now, the counterfeit of this is I am only a victim of sin. I am not a sinner with victims. This is where some people will talk about all the systemic sin and all of the institutional sin and all of the historical sin, yet they're beating their girlfriend. They're aborting their own child. They're failing to go to work as a man and to provide for the needs of the family. And the Bible says, any man who fails to provide for the needs of his family is denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever. 
And so let's just be honest that many of the problems that we have in our world are not just things that have been done to us, but things that have been done by us. Because here is the, the great hypocrisy of critical theory. I'm talking about everyone else's sin and how it's affected me, yet I'm not owning my sin and how it's affected them. But if they're talking about what has affected them, what has affected them is my sin. And so all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one has the moral high ground. And this is, um, this is this false sense of victimhood. And we are all victims, but the greatest victim is God. And if we're going to care about victims, we need to start with Jesus who suffered and died for our sin, confess our sin and start there. This leads to then a false counterfeit concept within critical theory and the critic and the accuser behind it all of righteousness. Righteousness is not um, something that is given to you, reckoned to you, or imputed to you through God. I'm teaching through the book of Romans. One of the great themes in Romans is imputed righteousness. That is that the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience, his death for our disobedience, and his resurrection to defeat Satan, sin, death, hell, and to disarm the wrath of God. And we are saved from God. We're saved by God. We're saved to God that ultimately that righteousness is imputed. It's given to me, not of works, so that I cannot boast, but of grace. It's a gift that God gives through Jesus Christ. In addition to imputed righteousness, where Paul's going in Romans, I'm working through the book, he talks about imparted righteousness. This is where God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the child of God to give them a new nature, a new heart, to cause them to be a new creation with new desires and new identity and new power, new relationship with God, to start to walk and live in the spirit, not in the flesh. Not a perfect you, but a new you that has the perfect spirit of God in you and is working through a perfection process that will be completed in eternity. That's the Bible's concept of righteousness. It's imputed through the justification of Jesus, it is imparted through the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. The counterfeit of that within uh, critical theory and counterculture is something called intersectionality. The more you suffer, the more righteous you are. And it, it ignores all of the suffering that you would cause others. It's total hypocrisy. It's me repenting of your sin, not my sin. And it's making myself the victim, not Jesus and others victims of my sin. It's a self-righteous secular religion. It is a innate hypocrisy. And this concept of intersectionality is the more places that you feel that you have experienced some form of injustice means that you are a more righteous person. So let's say um, you feel like, well, I was poor. Well, that's, that's one category. And I was female, that's another category. And I was of a certain race or cultural grouping, there's another. Or I was of this religious or spiritual community that was minority. Um, the more boxes I can tick, uh, the more points I win for the intersectionality game of righteousness through suffering. Never mind whether or not those things are even categories that God honors. Some religions, spiritualities, ideologies, they're just wrong. 
and you don't get points if you believe that and somebody says that it's wrong, it's actually very loving to tell you that you're in a cult or a false religion. And some people will say, well, we need to eradicate human suffering. And I would say, I agree with that. So let's start with the worst human suffering, which is hell. And let's preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let's bring God's cosmic justice to all sinners. Let's have the Holy Spirit indwell them so that the imparted and imputed righteousness of God starts to work through them. Let's see if they don't treat people differently, deal with sexuality differently, deal with economics differently, deal with their family differently. Let's see if they don't become better citizens, stop cheating on their girlfriends, murdering their children, and failing to pay the child support for the kid that they never wanted. I mean, this, it's, what's amazing to me in this world is that literally critical theory has taken the place of God and it's the one thing that you're not allowed to question or call into judgment that literally it's put itself in this ultimate authority sovereign seat where the, the only uh, unforgivable or unpardonable sin, if, if you could use that language, is to critique critical theory. Um, I was reading um, one academic uh, sort of treatise on the history of critical theory. And the one thing that they don't have is papers and books that critique critical theory. So critical theory will just critique everyone and everything, but not itself. It's replacing God. It's saying, I'm perfect, I'm in authority. And you need to know that behind critical theory is the critic and it is his way of trying to take the war that he lost in heaven and to win that war on earth. He tried to replace God. He critiqued God, he wanted to then replace God and he wanted to judge God and he wanted God not to have the authority or ability to judge him. He then lost that war Revelation 12, seven through nine, he was cast down. He's continuing that war. Now he uses marketing, social media platforms, hashtags, pickets, protests, statements, organizations, institutions, and candidates. Again, behind the world we see is the world we don't see. And ultimately uh, he remains the accuser of the children of God, accusing them day and night. Some other uh, things as well, Repentance is very interesting. Um, you don't repent to God, people repent to you. This is where people go on their apology tour. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And if you do something, you need to go find a celebrity. You need to sit on the couch. They're the version of the secular priest. This is now confessional. And you're going to just, uh, you're going to tell everyone all the bad things you did. You're not looking for God to forgive you. You're looking for people who are now in the judgment seat of God and they will render a verdict as to whether or not they forgive you. So we have this counterfeit of repentance. I don't repent to God, right? The Psalmist says against you only, Lord God, have I sinned. Uh, it's like, no, 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 no. We don't confess to God, we confess to people. People sit in God's judgment seat within this counterfeit of critical theory and cancel culture. And if we say or do anything wrong, we gotta find the secular version of the priest. We need to bring them into the confessional, turn the lights on, turn the camera on. They then need to confess their sins. And then we get to sit in God's seat and determine whether they are forgiven or unforgiven. That's the entire culture that we live in. Um, also too, there are heretics. Within Christianity, there are real heretics. There are national borders and there are state borders. National borders are those theological issues that if you cross those borders, you're not a Christian. 
Uh, this would include what I call the closed-handed issues, like the Bible is the perfect word of God. There is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity. We're here at the Trinity Church. This would include uh, the virgin birth, sinless life, substitutionary death, and bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This would include Jesus being fully man, fully God, one person, two natures. This would include repentance of sin and receiving of Jesus Christ for eternal life. It would include heaven and hell. These are the closed-handed national borders. If you cross one, you're in another religion or you're in a cult. Um, the big difference being that a cult still claims to be Christian, even though it has violated one of the national borders. Well, just like our country, we've got national borders. And as long as you're within them, you're in America. There are also states within our country. So I'm in Arizona. I don't know where you're at, but there are states within our country and we can travel between those borders and boundaries, though they do distinguish us. They do not completely divide us. These would be what I would call the open-handed issues within Christianity. Um, and so how old is the earth? Do you, well, how do you educate your kid, public, private, or homeschool? Uh, speaking in tongues, everybody, some people, nobody. Um, when is Jesus coming back? Um, what translation of the Bible should you use? Should you sprinkle somebody or just dunkity dunk dunk them? What should you do? Those are open-handed issues. Within critical theory and the counterfeit of cancel culture, they will brand you as a heretic and then you get labeled. And so you're a homophobe, you're an Islamophobe, you're non-binary. God is very binary. Just so you know, God's very binary. Heaven, hell, good, evil, God, Satan, truth, lies. He's very binary. See, if, if God went to Target, um, he would not think that you can choose either bathroom. He would think that there's one for the man and one for the woman, and that he made that very clear. And he doesn't know why it's so confused. Well, it's because of rebellion. The way it works today is you're branded a heretic if you disagree with critical theory. You don't believe that uh, there are two genders and sexes. Okay, now you are, you are branded as someone who is um, homophobic or um, you have a transgender bias, you do. Um, if, you, uh, if you believe that uh, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, now you're a religious bigot and you're intolerant, you're intolerant. And so people are branded as heretics and then they're treated like heretics are. They're put in the stockades, we throw tomatoes on them. Today, we call that social media and blog comments and comments on YouTube. And or we just burn them at the stake. We literally just set their life on fire and burn it to the ground because that's what you do to the heretics. There's also a counterfeit of being born again within critical theory. And this is something that exists within confused gender ideology, um, but, but they'll talk about being woke. That language of woke, that's the demonic counterfeit of being born again. Um, when you're born again, the language is I was blind and now I see, I was dead, now I'm alive. Within critical theory, it was I was asleep and now I've been awakened. It is um, their version of um, public testimony or, or, or baptism. It's, it's like a sacrament. It's just publicly declaring uh, and it goes together with coming out of the closet. And so let's say you're going to now recreate your gender. God made your gender. You're gonna recreate your gender. Coming out of the closet, that's your sacrament. That's like give, giving your testimony and getting baptized. 
This is the counterfeit in the church of critical theory of now testifying publicly. And within this as well, um, to be woke is to be awakened. It's the demonic counterfeit of being born again. So if you're one of these preachers that's preaching for your people to get woke, what you're preaching is for something other than the spirit of God to awaken them that the Holy Spirit does quicken or awaken the child of God, but a demonic spirit is willing to do the same because Satan is the deceiver, uh, that he uh, has counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles to deceive even the elect, the Bible says, if possible. Uh, They're also evangelists. Within Christianity, we got evangelists and they go to the street and they're gonna be out letting everybody know. We have that now. We have pickets, protests, parades. We have marches and bullhorns, and we have people who are literally preaching the gospel of critical theory, the false gospel, the counterfeit gospel of critical theory, and they are calling you to publicly convert and to join. Now it becomes an identity for you. Now this becomes your counterfeit to the church. This becomes your cause. Let me just say this, be very wary as a leader that your cause remains Christ. And sometimes what happens is we'll have Christ and then we'll pick up a cause and then we'll use Christ for the cause. And then eventually we'll lose Christ and keep the cause. This is how liberalism works. It starts with Christ, it adds a cause and pretty soon it removes Christ and it remains with the cause. That's exactly what happens in liberalism. And this concept of being woke and these street evangelists um, pounding the pavement and calling for conversion, they're willing for you to keep a little bit of Christ as long as you embrace their cause, but eventually just know this, that uh, you will lose your Christ and you will keep your cause. And that's how we get apostasy. That's how we get cults. That's how we get false teaching. That's how we get demonic deception. They're also um, talked about justice. There's also a counterfeit of crucifixion. I've got a few minutes left. See, in Christianity, Jesus Christ was crucified for our sin out of love as a substitute. What happens in cancel culture, we crucify you. We take everything you've ever said, we're gonna let everybody know. We're gonna take everything you've ever done, we're gonna let everybody know. We're gonna crucify you. Cancel culture is a demonic counterfeit of critical theory, and it is a demonic counterfeit to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're going to kill your business. We're gonna crucify your business. We're gonna crucify your reputation. We're gonna crucify your organization. We're gonna crucify your sponsorships. We're gonna crucify your book. We're gonna crucify your social media platform. You are crucified and you're buried and you can't rise again. It's a demonic counterfeit. And and it's, it's a denial that we too are sinners and that our great God and savior, Jesus Christ, he didn't crucify us, he was crucified for us. And he didn't cancel us, he adopted us. And this is where Paul says in in Romans and Galatians, the spirit of God brings it to mind that we don't have the spirit of slaves, we have the spirit of sons. We have the spirit of God. The spirit of critical theory, the spirit of counter, of a cancel culture, the, uh, the, the spirit of this demonic counterfeit that has overtaken our world, it's a spirit of slavery, it's a spirit of slavery. There's no freedom, there's no life, there's no joy. There's just steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. It's a spirit of slavery. And God is a father. And he says that we are the sons of God. 
And Satan is a father and he also parents his kids. That's where Jesus says in John eight, he says, your father is the devil. A lot of people, Satan is their father and he's the father of lies and they're echoing the father of lies and they're living as his slaves and they don't get the enjoyment that God gives to us as sons. That's why that whole cancel culture and critical theory, it's not joyful, it's not happy. You don't see the fruit of the spirit there. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Because that only happens under the spirit of sonship, not under the spirit of slavery. It only happens when there is Jesus Christ being crucified for us, not us crucifying one another. Um, There are also Pharisees. Jesus had the Pharisees, they followed him around and they're just nitpicking over minor things. He says, you tithe out of your spice rack, but you forget the weightier matters of the law. Today, we call these microaggressions. Microaggressions are what the uh, critical theory and cancel culture counterfeit uh, leaders do. They're walking around looking for microaggressions. Oh, mispronunciation of pronoun. You said he and not they. That was a microaggression. The Pharisees are here to criticize you and they're going to make you abide. People just carry forth this religious disposition. What I'm telling you is that um, if you don't have the real kingdom of God, the counterfeit has all of the counterfeits that Jesus dealt with, like the Pharisees. Uh, In addition, um, there is a false concept and a counterfeit of the kingdom. In the kingdom of God, Jesus has all wealth and power and cares for us. Uh, the way it works with uh, critical theory and cancel culture is everybody who has wealth and power, it needs to be taken from them and redistributed because the lie under critical theory is the same lie that was under the Tower of Babel. And that is that we can have heaven on earth without God. It overlooks original sin. It overlooks human depravity. It overlooks the fact that sin is infected and affected the totality of our person. Our, our emotional life, our mental life, our physical life, our spiritual life, all of our thoughts, words, and deeds, and motives, all of it is infected and affected by sin. And so even if we take all the money and power from these sinners and we give it to these sinners, we don't get heaven. The only way we get heaven is if the Lord Jesus, who alone is perfect, if he oversees as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, all of the wealth and power, and he distributes it as he sees fit and whatever he decides is in fact justice. And so what we have is this counterfeit thought of a kingdom. And this is where every election year, people are really, it's like they're voting for a Messiah. We get together with religious zeal. We become evangelists for the candidate. And we just think if we vote for them, they will take all the money and power. They will take it away from the bad people. They'll give it to us, the good people, and then we'll have heaven on earth. And after a few hundred years, I think we should just render the verdict that that experiment has failed that heaven is not just a place, it's a person named Jesus Christ. And that ultimately the kingdom of God only works if we have the King of Kings. Until then, we have a bunch of fallen sinners arguing and fighting over redistribution of resources. And the truth is it doesn't matter which sinner you give it to, eventually they will find a way to use it for that which is wrong or poor stewardship. Um, There's also a version of jihad in all of this. Uh, Within uh, some religions, there's jihad, and that's where the cause is forwarded by imposition, not proposition. It's convert or die, for example, in some radical versions of Islam. Well, within critical theory and cancel culture, the counterfeit is jihad. You agree or die. 
You agree or die. It's imposition, not proposition. And this is where um, Christians today, uh, if you really care a lot about offending, you need to be very sure that if you are put in a position where you offend them or you offend him, that you make your choice wisely. Because this jihadi uh, sort of disposition, it says, do not offend me or I will attack you. And it's like, you know what? This is ultimately between you and my Jesus. This is between you and the word of God. This is between you and the spirit of God. This is between you and the kingdom of God. And at the end of the day, if I'm going to offend you or I'm going to offend him, I'm going to offend you. And ultimately I'll give an account to him. And so you can punish me, but he told me that this was going to happen. He says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. He says, in the world, you will have trouble. He says, they've hated me, they're gonna hate you. So my king told me that jihad was coming and I will endure jihad because I belong to Jesus. In addition, um, I'll just hit a few things. The reason why critical theory and cancel culture is so popular, especially for those of you who are younger, um, now that I'm 50, I could say that, I get to be one of the old guys, is because of social media. You know, we don't, we don't need more followers, we need more worshipers. That's what we need. We have plenty of followers, we need more worshipers. But if you're really worried about your social media platform, and you hear this all the time, people are like, well, I'm, I've got my platform, I'm building my platform. I was like, you know what? Your platform is gonna go away and Jesus' platform is all that there's going to be. And he's literally gonna pull us up from our graves and put us on his platform. So at the end of the day, don't worry about your platform, worry about his platform. Don't worry about your reputation, worry about his reputation. I, I've, I've had some said, something said about me that are fairly negative. And I had somebody one time say, uh, Pastor Mark, does it not bother you the things that are said about you? I said, well, if I gave Jesus my sin, why not also throw in my reputation? Um, all of me belongs to Jesus. So, and I know some of you will say, yeah, but Paul says to have a good reputation with outsiders. Yeah, when he said that kind of stuff, he tended to say it from prison, which means whatever a good reputation is, is big enough to be a criminal. The other reason that it becomes so popular to give into the spirit of the age. Um, and this is for some of you who are Protestant. Protestantism, you just look at the first half of the title and I'm Protestant, I'm more reformed by nature. I'm not a big fan of the five points of Calvinism, but, uh, but I like Luther a lot and I like Calvin. But Protestantism is a protest it was defining yourself by who or what you're against. What happens for some who are more reformed, because some of you will be very confused because this, this hard veer left, and I'm not even talking politically, I'm talking theologically and morally. And let me just say this, most people have a problem with the Bible, really have a problem with their pants. It's very simple. Uh, people are very simple. They're not like, I have a problem with the Bible. You have a problem with your pants. Most theological problems are moral problems we suppress the truth. And then it goes on to the remainder of Romans one to talk about sexual sin and homosexuality and the only express forbidding of lesbianism in the entire Bible. And what it says is people have a problem with the Bible. It's just because they like sex and they wanna have sex with whomever they want. And God says no. So they have to then be God's editors rather than God's worshipers. So just know this, most of the people have a problem with the Bible. There are things in their life that they don't want God to have the authority to say no to. And most of them are sexual. 
That explains why critical theory is so important. Number one, for some people, it's very popular. Like if you, if you post the right things and jump on the right hashtags, you're gonna trend, you're gonna be an influencer. And if you're a Christian or an evangelical, they're gonna make you the poster child for their thing. And they're gonna try to drag Jesus and his reputation into their demonic counterfeit. The other reason that it is so incredibly popular, some people just have things in their life that they are struggling with or unwilling to repent of. And when critical theory comes along and says, hey, we have a way to explain an open marriage. We have a way to explain reorienting, reorienting your gender. Hey, we have a way to explain living with your girlfriend. Hey, we have a way to explain being a porn head. Hey, we have a way to explain whatever it is you want to do. If you are open to that, you will then allow the spirit of the accuser and the critic to start to edit God's words so that you don't have to edit your behavior. See, the big idea is this, when you disagree with God's word, either you need to change your behavior or you need to change his word. And critical theory says we have a very academic way. We can even quote Greek and Hebrew. We have people educated beyond their intelligence. They have more degrees than Fahrenheit and they will give you a very persuasive reason why you can be a naughty person. The third reason is it's popular is Protestantism. It's a, it's, a, it's a protest. This is where some of my friends that would have started more over on the theological right, more conservative, they're jumping on all kinds of strange like social bandwagons and isms. You're like, why is that? Well, it could be one of the first two. Maybe they wanna be the cool kids. Usually they were the nerds in high school. They weren't the cool kids. And maybe if now they start you know, joining the critical crowd, uh, they could become the cool kids. For some of them, maybe there's some stuff in their own life that they've got some behavior problems and some sin issues. And sometimes it's just the spirit of the protest because there are some within Protestantism, especially within the reformed tradition, they're just, you know what a protester is? It's a critic. Critical theory is just another way of saying protester. It's why critical theory leads to protests. People are asking, why do we have all these protests? Because critical theory leads to protests who or what are we against now? And it's always who or what are we against? And hear me in this, the first person, the first being to be against was Satan and he was against God. He was the first critic. He organized the first protest. Demons were the first protesters. And I'm not saying that all protest is always bad, but we need to be careful that we're not following in the legacy of Satan and demons who were the first critics and architected the first protest in the presence of God. And what happens is if, if you're always defining yourself by who or what you're against, eventually the theological protest shows up with the critical culture and you end up with the mega protest. That's what's happening in some circles. This is where some previously seemingly Bible-believing evangelical Christians are now unifying with people who are literally anti-Christ, but what they share is not the same ideology, but the same spirit, the spirit of the accuser, the spirit of criticism, the spirit of protest. Because if you're always defining yourself by who or what you're against, not who and what you're for, Jesus and the gospel, eventually the protests get together and that's how you end up with a mega protest. Um, and let me just uh, close with this. Um, many, many years ago, I was a young leader. I think I was in my 20s. Um, I've been a senior pastor for about 25 years in the pulpit, preaching through books of the Bible. Like I said, I'm in Romans right now. And uh, many, many, many years ago, when I was a young guy, 
Um, and I was starting to wade into some of these issues. And again, I, I, I dealt with a lot of college students. So I feel like I come from the future. I was with college students in what was the least church city and state at the time in the United States of America. It got so bad that there was actually a women's studies class at the major university that uh, was against me, used me as the case study for um, Christian bigotry, toxic masculinity, which anymore I think just means you're a dude. Um, all kinds of stuff like that. I didn't even know it. I went to the bank and I went to make a deposit and this kid was the teller and they're like, oh, you're Mark Driscoll? He's like, yeah, have you been to my church? They're like, no, 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 but we watch your videos in class. I said, oh, is that good or bad? Oh, it's bad. We hate you. Okay. Yeah, you're, you're, you're what's wrong with the world. You're a, you're a male with opinions who, you know, is heterosexual and had children, which ruins the environment, five kids. And, um, and you're teaching other men to be men who marry women and have children and believe the Bible. So yeah, basically you're, you're the worst. Um, and it was really curious because, uh, because it was around that same time that I went to meet with uh, a legendary evangelical leader. His name was uh, Dr. J.I. Packer. Uh, Billy Graham, J.I. Packer, uh, John Stott, and Francis Schaeffer. I would say those were the, uh, those were the four horsemen of evangelicalism. Uh, those were the godfathers. And uh, some young leaders and I, we had the opportunity to sit down with uh, Dr. J.I. Packer. Let me just close with the story that comes to mind. And, and let me just say this too. You're gonna find something that I said that was wrong and you can critique it. Um, or you can just forgive it. If you want something that is perfect and has no errors and uh, has no reason to be critiqued, I would just tell you to read the Bible. Everything else you're gonna find problems with and you can criticize. Um, but I sat down with uh, Dr. G.I. Packer with some young evangelical leaders, and this was decades ago. And at the time he was living in Canada. Cause see, Europe is ahead of us, uh, I'd say probably a generation. Um, at least the more secular woke portions of Europe that have trended even socialistic, which we didn't get into, but is part of the counterfeit. And then Canada is like half a generation behind. And then America is a generation behind. So Canada is like between the US and, um, and uh, many Euro Western European nations, uh, socially, politically, and historically. And so uh, he was in Canada. He got kicked out, J.I. Packer, I don't know if you know this, he got kicked out of his denomination. Uh, so did, um, well, Spurgeon had a lot of conflict with his denomination and Jonathan Edwards, I think, got fired twice. So just because a guy gets a little conflict doesn't mean he's a bad guy. Sometimes history comes around and fixes it. That's what I'm hoping for. But um, J.I. Packer got kicked out of his denomination over the issue of gay marriage. And this was, this was a long time ago before it was legal in America. Uh, back when the Clintons and the Obamas were against it. This was a long time ago. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, Dr. Packer, I said, surveying the future as younger evangelical leaders, um, what would you recommend to us that we keep our eye on as the biggest issue or liability or concern for the next generation of evangelicalism? I just wanted to know, okay, you seem to be a bit of a prophet. You're living in the future, thinking in the future. At this point, he was a wise sage of a man. Speak to us young guys that don't know anything. We still got training wheels on our ministry, uh, what to look for. 
And uh, he said, uh, the greatest threat uh, that is coming is tolerance. And this was 20 some years ago. I said, okay, well, explain that to me, Dr. Packer. And he basically said that tolerance is a heresy. I said, a heresy? I said, explain that. He said, uh, Mark, do you remember uh, when Martin Luther posted the 99 theses on the Wittenberg door in Germany? My wife, Grace and I, we actually toured there last year. And I said, no, Dr. Packer, I hate to tell you, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian school and I didn't meet Jesus till fairly recently. And yeah, there's a lot of things I don't know, but off the top of my head, I can't tell you what the first line was. And he said, the first line on the 99 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the Wittenberg door, kind of the, the shot heard round the world that launched Protestantism and a return to the gospel. He said, was this, all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. He said, you cannot preach the gospel of Jesus Christ unless you preach repentance, personal, individual repentance of sin. He said, the reason that tolerance is a heresy is it says that you don't need to repent. There's nothing wrong with you. You don't need to change. The truth is friends, God loves us so much. He takes us as we are. He loves us too much to allow us to stay as we are. He loves us so much that he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. I preached that on this last weekend. Our goal is not to be true to us, but to be true to him. Our goal is not to become like we think we should be, but become like the Lord Jesus, who is the perfect human being. And he alone is the example of what we ultimately should aspire to and who we should be like. The demonic counterfeit that is told by the father of lies and is imposed by critical theory and is um, secured by a cancel culture is this, tolerance tolerance. It's the counterfeit of repentance. You don't need to repent of your sexuality. You don't need to repent of your ideology. And the demonic counterfeit is that everyone else needs to repent to me because I'm the victim. I'm Jesus. I'm not. We're all sinners by nature and choice. There's only one Jesus. We all sinned against him and we need to repent to him. And if he says something is wrong and we say that it is right, then we're preaching a counterfeit gospel of repentance instead of the true gospel of repentance. And tolerance is the counterfeit gospel of repentance. So let me say this, what's at stake is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if we don't call people to repent of personal sin, they cannot be born again. They cannot belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and they cannot enter into the eternal kingdom of God. And instead, all they're left with is this demonic culture that is a counterfeit. They are told that they are righteous when they are not. They are told that they are secure when they are not. They are told that they are good when they are not. And it's all demonic deception and lie. So at the end of the day, here's what I would say. Number one, repent of your sin. Number two, receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Number three, encourage other people to repent of their sin and to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And before you get so worked up about everyone else's sin, start with your own. Before you start protesting what everyone else has said and done, make sure that you're protesting yourself by repenting and owning your own sin. And that ultimately, we're not going to stand before a mirror and give an account. We're gonna stand before Jesus. And the only way to be ready is to repent of sin and to receive him. We hope today's message impacted you and they will continue to bless your life and legacy for generations to come. 
For more Real Leaders content, visit realfaith.com slash realleaders. And to sign up to get Real Leaders content straight to your inbox, visit realfaith.com slash sign up.